have been on a fast-paced trip these last five weeks studying Ruth and Esther, and today we are in the last of three on the study of Esther. Both Esther and Ruth um, ha- were, are women, were women who bucked convention, who went against the grain of society and who they were supposed to be as women, and they did some unconventional things, and in so doing became God's agents of redemption and salvation uh, in the world and for the people of God. And so today we're going to talk, zero in on Esther and where we've been in Esther. Uh, Esther is a story primarily of salvation, the salvation of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. It has a lot of plot twists and turns. It's fast-paced. As you recall, if you've been here the last few weeks, while Ruth had very little mention of God, Esther has no mention of God, no mention of prayer. God isn't even mentioned one time. And yet God's presence appears not only to be assumed, it's very palpable. You can feel God's presence in and underneath the whole story of Esther. It's what we call an etiology. It explains why something happens. It's an etiology of the Jewish festival of Purim. And so when we get to the end of the book today, we're going to hear how all of it came about and why Purim is a festival. The setting of the story is in the post-exilic Persian Empire. The Jews have been, Babylon conquered um, Israel. They are all sent into exile. It's a generation or two later. The Persians are in power. Um, The Jews are not slaves. They are free, and they are in their land, and they are still living in Persia and doing quite well. It's during the time of, as the story says, King Ahasuerus, but there is no uh, Persian king named Ahasuerus. It's thought that this is referring to King Xerxes, who lived in around 480 B.C. So it's in the Persian Empire during this time era, post-exilic, and it reads like a novella. It's very exciting. It's fast-paced. There's this bumbling king and his bumbling court, and then you have uh, heroes and heroines and villains. You could almost hear people hissing in the background when some of these names are read. Uh, It's an exciting time. And the two main Jewish characters, Esther and Mordecai, have assimilated into the Persian Empire. They're living quite comfortably and living uh, as Jews in the empire. And we find this act of assimilation, this fitting in with your culture, something that God tells the people of the exile to do when they're sent into exile in Babylon. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And Esther and Mordecai have done this. Mordecai is... um, a courtier of the king in the Persian Empire. Esther, as we learn, has become queen. And so they are living a Persian life in the Persian Empire and seeking the welfare of their city, but also their people. 
There's some themes that have been running through all five weeks, and so they continue today, so look for these things. Power. Who has it? Who receives it? Who loses it? And we see this theme of reversal of power. And what are you going to do with that power? Do you use it wisely? Do you use it for good or for evil? And you see what happens to people when they use it for evil. Also, so in the theme of power, we find that to truly have power, one must have the skill and the wisdom to use it properly. For instance, Ahasuerus's power, the king's, is really kind of a sham because he gives his power away to anyone who asks for it. And he makes silly, stupid, dangerous decisions on the advice of people on whims. He's very impulsive and he acts very emotionally. Haman is another character, is the king's right-hand man, his vizier, and he uses his power unwisely and also very dangerously. Esther and Mordecai, um, Esther is the orphan. Mordecai, her cousin, is the one who has raised her since she was a child. And so Esther, the uh, orphan, and Mordecai, the exile, he's called, uh, represent the marginalized and the powerless exiles and the diaspora Jews. So if we, that is how they are to be thought of here. Also, there's a theme of human action. Um, there is no mention of God in this book, as we said. There's no apparent divine miracles. The Red Sea doesn't part. Manna from heaven doesn't fall down. Um, there's no pillar of cloud or fire. For God's purposes to occur and for justice to occur, God's people must act as God's agents. That is the theology of this writer. And so I think it's very intentional that he doesn't use God's name so that we get the idea that theologically he's on the side of God is in the background working, but you need to step up and be God's agent in order to make God's justice happen. So God is in the background working. We see this, um, or we, we sort of assume this from this passage. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther when he says, you've got to go tell the king to help us out here and save our lives. And she says, mm, I don't think I want to do that. And he says, for if you keep silence at such a time as this, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. That's the most uh, familiar verse probably of this entire book. And it is the one that says, there's a reason why you're here in this time, in this place. And if you don't act, you're working against God's God's will and God's purpose. We also see this theme of racial hostility. Um, Mordecai is a Jew, descended from Saul, the king from King Saul. Haman is an Agagite, descended from King Agag. And so anytime they say uh, Haman the Agagite, again, you can just almost feel the audience listening, going hissing. Um, Saul and Agag were always at war with each other, and the Agagites or the Amalekites and the Jews were just blood enemies. There was this constant feud all the time in their history. 
So this racial hostility then finds its way into personal quarrels that are elevated to a national crisis. Um, Haman is mad at Mordecai, and so uh, rather than taking it out on Mordecai, he wants to destroy all the Jews, not just one. I'm gonna, let's wipe out everybody. And we find then also because of uh, racial hostility, oppression based on race or ethnicity, ethnicity in this book is painted as evil. And so those are some of our themes. So here's what's happened so far to try to catch some of you up to speed. There's been chapter one, there was a banquet and banishment. King Ahasuerus throws a banquet that's 180 days. That's six months, if you're counting. And when we use the word banquet in this, in this book, we're not talking about a Kiwanis Club affair. This is, the wine is flowing freely for a long time, and people sometimes make bad errors in judgment because of that. So the king, when he's had a lot to drink, asks his queen, Vashti, to come and show off her beauty before all of his subjects, wearing the royal crown. And she's thinking, I'm not going into this room full of drunk men. And she says, no, thank you. I don't think I'll show up. And he asks his advisors, who say, well, let's just get rid of her then. Let's banish her. And so that's what happens. We have a banquet. We have banishment. And then we have a beauty contest. Um, he asks his advisors, once again, because he can't make a decision by himself, what should we do? Let's have a beauty contest and make all the young pretty women from the kingdom come and we'll choose the best one or the king will choose the best one to become the new queen. And what a coincidence. There's a lot of coincidences in here so that we can kind of see God in the background. Coincidentally, Esther wins the contest and she becomes queen. Her cousin Mordecai He's always at the king's gate because he's a courtier. Overhears a plot to kill the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The plot is dissolved. The bad guys are killed. What isn't known, the king doesn't know that Esther and Mordecai are Jews, nor does he know that they're related. Mordecai has asked Esther to keep that a secret for some reason. We don't know why. And then we find a conflict between Mordecai and Haman. Haman, again, is the king's right-hand man. He has been elevated to the top post. And when he's elevated to this top post, he says, King, if it pleases you, I'd like to have everyone in the kingdom bow down to me. And he goes, okay, do whatever you want. That's fine. And the king gives him permission to do that, and Mordecai refuses. And so rather than just get mad at Mordecai and punish him, he says, I want to wipe out all the Jews for this. Let's just kill everybody that's, that's kind of behind this. And so what he does is that he, he makes this plot to kill all the Jews, and he goes to the king and he sells his idea to the king, and he says, listen, there's these people, he doesn't say who they are, there's these people in your kingdom that are really different from everybody else, and they don't keep the king's laws, which was a lie, and they have different laws of their own, and I think we should just get rid of them. And the king hands over his signet ring, which is the royal symbol of power, Anything that had the signet ring stamp on it means it's an order from the king. He says, here, you just do with these people as you want to. And Haman says, by the way, if you'll let me do this, I'll put 10,000 pieces of silver in your bank account. So basically, he buys the right to do what he wants. And then um, Haman rolls the dice, as they say. He gets 
pure, P-U-R, which is another word for lots. They cast lots. He and his advisors pretty much roll the dice to see what is going to be a good day to kill all the Jews. We're going to do it on one day. And so a day is decided, the 13th, uh, the 13th day in Adair. And so Mordecai finds out about this plot. And he goes to Esther and says, you've got to save us. You've got to go before the king and tell him what's going on. And she says, well, I don't know if you know. Remember, you're, you know the law. If you go before the king without him summoning you, he could kill me. He could say, you're irritating me and have me killed. And so he says then those famous words to her, well, if you don't, sister, we're all dead and you will be too because you're not going to be saved just because you live here in the palace. By the way, the decree came from the palace. So she decides for the first time not to do what she's always been told. She does act on her own, and she says, okay, everybody, we're going to get everybody together, and I want you to fast. She doesn't say fast and pray, but when you say fast, what comes hand in hand with that? Right, so call a fast on my behalf. I'm going to the king. Three-day fast, she shows up to the king, and he holds out his golden scepter, which means you can come forward. Whew. She's averted death. He says, what's your, what's your request? What do you want from me? He knows it's got to be serious because she has shown up at risk of her life. And instead of falling down on her knees and saying, oh my gosh, you have to save us, she says, well, my request is that you come to a banquet at my house. Well, okay, and bring Haman with you. So Haman goes with the king to Esther's house. They have a banquet, and just she butters up the king, and again he says, so what is your request? And she says, Come, come to another banquet, and then I'll tell you. So she's getting, him, she's getting him obligated to give her her request. And the night of the banquet, the king leaves, and Haman leaves feeling really good about himself because he's had dinner with the king and the queen. And he says, everything in my life is great except this Mordecai guy won't bow down to me. It really bugs me. And so his advisors and his wife say, well, why don't you just have a gallows built for him and ask the king tomorrow to have him killed on it? He says, that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. So what has happened is now we have a gallows. We've had a, been to a banquet. And then that night, the king has insomnia. It just so happens. What a coincidence. The king has insomnia, can't sleep, and he says, bring the royal records the annals and read them to me so that I can go to sleep. It's a good sleep aid. Bring the royal annals so I can go to sleep. And it just so happens that the story of Mordecai averting the plot to kill the king is being read. And he goes, by the way, what did we ever do to, re to reward Mordecai, the Jew, for saving my life? And they said, not a darn thing. And he says, oh my gosh, we have to do something about that. Who's in the court that I could ask? Because, you know, I can't make a decision by myself. Who's in the court that can tell me what we should do about this? And they said, oh, by the way, Haman just walked in. He says, great, bring him in here. He says, Haman, if I wanted to reward someone, the king wants to reward someone, what should the king do? And Haman thinks, oh, he's going to reward me. I think the king should have the person dressed in the finest royal robes, ridden on the king's horse with a crown on his head, 
and the king should have one of his top advisors lead the one who's to be rewarded through the st- all the streets of Susa, saying, this is how the king rewards though that he, those that he favors. And the king says, that is a great idea. I want you to go get Mordecai and do all that, and you can lead him through the street. <laughs> so Haman is humiliated, and he goes home that night, and he says, you can't believe what's happened to me. I'm totally humiliated. And uh, they said, this is probably not a good sign. This is an omen that, this, that, the, that the Jew is going to get the upper hand in this. But go on to the banquet tomorrow, a happy guy. So here we go. What's going to happen? Who's going to win? Are the Jews going to be saved? They're on their way to the second banquet. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, and we know the king always gets in a great mood when he starts drinking wine and all these banquets we've had, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen answer, the Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me that is my petition and the lives of my people that is my request for we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated if we had been sold merely as slaves I would have held my peace but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king So the second banquet begins as the first plea when Esther shows up at the king's palace asking, can can I make a request? And it begins as the first banquet. When the wine course is reached, the king's feeling good, and he repeats his offer to Esther. And for the third time in the exact language, she finally, she finally speaks, this moment we've been waiting for, she speaks up, and her request is an absolute bombshell. All I want is my life and the life of my people. But who are her people? The king still doesn't know. And so she suggests, by the order of her request, spare my life and the life of my people, that what will be more important to the king than a whole bunch of people in his kingdom is her life because he likes her. And then she really gains steam. Then she gets on a roll, and she says, we have been sold. She's alluding to Haman's bribe to put 10,000 pieces of silver into the king's bank account, but the king doesn't really yet know what she's talking about. And this we, instead of saying, I have been sold, we have been sold keeps the matter (coughs) impersonal. To be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated they are the exact verbs used in Haman's decree, if you were here last week. He sent out this decree that says all the Jews are to be the killed on one day. They're going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And so she has used the same language. No enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. So we don't know, does this mean that if the queen is killed and her people, that it's an attack on the king, it's damaging to the king. I would think so because he, you know, he kind of likes her. He, I don't know if he cares too much about the other people. He doesn't seem to care too much about anything at all except banquets. Um, but it could mean that, or the Hebrew in this verse is really kind of hard to translate, and so some verses translate it this way. If we had merely been sold as slaves, 
I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king, meaning I wouldn't have come before you for such a silly thing as being made a slave. So this whole book is written very tongue-in-cheek, and it, it is kind of, well, it's not funny, but it's funny. Uh, so she says, I wouldn't have disturbed you because it's all about the king, right? Either way, everything that she does must be termed in, uh, phrased in terms of how it's going to benefit or damage the king. And so Esther chooses her words wisely because she knows it's all about him. Then King Hazarus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has presumed to do this? And here it gets really good. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman, who's sitting across the dinner table, was terrified before the king and the queen. Then the king rose from the feast in wrath and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that the king was determined to destroy him. When the king returned, he's been out in the gardens, Haman had thrown himself on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Who has, oh, so, so let's go back. He says, who has presumed to do this? The king is astonished that anybody would want to kill the queen, right? And he doesn't have a clue what Esther's talking about, this being sold business. So because he's never asked the identity, when Haman says there's a people in your kingdom, he just hands his ring over. He goes, just do whatever you think's best to these people. It's fine. So he hands over his power to someone without even finding out who's going to be affected or why. And so this is the climax of the scene, and it comes as Esther makes this startling accusation, sort of like in a Perry Mason courtroom. She's pointing, that's him, Your Honor, right over there. So all the secrets are revealed. Haman, the Agagite, is the sworn enemy of Esther the Jew, even though we're not sure that the king knows that she's Jewish yet. And the king has got to choose between his two favorite people. It says that Haman had thrown himself on the couch to beg for his life. He's, they're reclining when they're eating, and she's pro he's probably like at her feet. And he's thrown himself onto the couch. Ironically, the one who wished to kill all the Jews because one man, Jew, Mordecai, would not bow down to him, is now bowing to a Jew. So there's a lot of ir irony here. And again, we have a comical scene. To me, it's, it's sort of, if you're just reading this, it's sort of like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby in those road, old roadshow movies where you can just see uh, all the irony showing up here. The one accused of attempted murder is forced to beg for mercy, and the king returns from the garden to see uh, not somebody begging for his life, but someone trying to ravish his wife. <laughs> and so because the word attack, he said, do you presume to attack the queen in my presence? Attack uh, in Hebrew is also translated as molest, so we can, get, we can go either way on that. And so we're thinking that he's thinking that this guy's ravishing his wife because it's going to be difficult to, for the king to punish Haman for doing something that he had been given permission to do a long time ago with the signet ring, but not for this kind of attack. So then one of the attendants of the king said, Looky, looky, what a coincidence. The very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, by the way, stands at Haman's house. He's built this 75-foot gall uh, gallows in his backyard. And the king said, hang him on that. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. It made him feel all better. <laughs> so a second charge can be leveled against Haman. He's plotted to kill the king's benefactor. This is one who the king owes his life to, whose word saved the king. And so Ahasuerus makes another snap decision at the leading of others. He, you know, he doesn't stop to think. He just says, let's, let's kill him. And ironically, Haman is killed on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So he, she has said, I'm a Jew, Mordecai is my cousin, and he has raised me. Then the king took off his signet ring and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So these two verses um, kind of bring an end to the events that began with the king's insomnia and all of this rolling of the banquets and the pleading for life, and now Haman is dead. Esther and Mordecai's relationship is finally disclosed, and Ahasuerus gives to Esther the house of Haman. That means everything that belonged to him, his property. And what we find in history is that both uh, historians Herodotus and Josephus confirm that the property of a trader in the Persian Empire would revert to the crown. So this is very customary. So the, the king gets the trader's property and he gives it to the queen and the queen sets Haman over it to look at it for her. Ahasuerus gives his newly confiscated signet ring and, and this very power imbuing signet ring to Mordecai and Esther, of course, places Mordecai over her new possessions. He's the overseer of it, but she owns it. And thus, Mordecai receives his position and wealth because he's related to Esther. And so this scene is the pivotal point in the story where we have this reversal of power and people using power for better things. Um, the great reversal has taken place. Esther and Mordecai and Haman have switched places. Esther and Mordecai can be sort of seen as a unit here, and they have switched places. Haman is dead, and his possessions belong to Esther and Mordecai. Now, if this were a movie, the credits would begin to roll and say they lived happily ever after, and they'd be riding off into the sunset, but it's not. We'd roll the credits, but the Jews are still under a threat. Um, I don't know if I told you this from last week, but if once a decree is made by the king in, these, in Persia, this is, we don't know if this is history or fact, but this is the way it reads in this book, once a decree is made, it can't be revoked. The law can't be changed. And so we have to find out what happens. What happens? It, Esther has been saved so far, but will everyone else be? Then Esther spoke again to the king, and now she's going to do what we've been waiting for her to do since banquet number one. She fell at his feet, weeping and pleading with him to avert the evil design of Haman, the Agagite, devised against the Jews. The king held out the golden scepter to Esther, and Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it pleases the king, and you know, if you've been here for three weeks, anytime someone says, if it pleases the king, it does. If it pleases the king, and if I have won your favor, and she has, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I have his approval, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Let's revoke that. 
For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming upon my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now she's, she's making it. She's, it's, it's about me, but it's wise. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to the Jew Mordecai, See, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him because he plotted to lay hands on the Jews. Well, he really hanged them because he plotted to lay hands on Esther. But this was part of the deal. You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. So you can do what you want. Haman may be dead, but this irrevocable edict is still in force. The genocide is scheduled to take place soon, and this means that there are probably others other than Haman who may want to put his plan into action. So Esther begins by falling at the king's feet, just as Haman fell at hers, but she's got a better outcome. And she shows, this is the first sign of emotion that, that uh, Esther has shown in the entire book. She's been very calm and collected, which makes us wonder, maybe this was something that she planned as well. She weeps. She's the only one left who can influence the king to act to avert the danger. And interestingly, she makes not an ethical argument, how can you kill all these innocent people, but she makes an emotional one, a personal one. If it seems right before the king, if I have his approval, if I have won his favor, if I am good in his eyes, it's about the king and it's about her. She uses this very smart argument appealing to this impulsive and emotional king. Even though she's being rational, she knows how to get to him. He's going to be doing her a favor, saving her a lot of grief by overturning Haman's decree. And so, let an order be written. She uses this language. It's an impersonal plea which divests the king of personal responsibility because she also knows he doesn't take responsibility for anything. So, let an order be written. Doesn't have to be by you. Let an order be written. And Esther uses the same language that Haman did in his decree. Um, but since the first decree can't be revoked, the king gives complete responsibility for the situation to Esther and Mordecai. It's up to them, not him, to act, and so they do. They have permission to write a new command as it is good in his eyes, and so we have to see how are the Jews, or are they going to be saved? So the king's secretaries were summoned, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded. He's about to take some action here. He wrote letters in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed them with that ever-popular and powerful ring, and sent them by mounted couriers riding on fast steeds bred from the royal herd. You can see the dust flying up from their hooves as they, as they go along the kingdom. By these letters, the king allowed the Jews in every city to defend their lives, to destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, and to plunder their goods on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And here it is, on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, which is the same day that the Jews are supposed to be killed, destroyed, annihilated. So a copy of the writ was to be issued in every province, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take revenge on their enemies. Mordecai then becomes, he's the main actor. He duplicates the language of Haman's decree, kill, destroy, annihilate, plunder uh, in every province on the same date. And Mordecai de decree 
neutralizes Haman's without revoking it because you can't revoke a, a decree. And it gives the Jews permission to defend their lives. Which this assumes that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to attack. So um, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king wearing royal robes, a great golden crown, and a mantle of fine linen. While the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Furthermore, many of the peoples of the country professed to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So Mordecai, if you were here last week, Mordecai was at the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes. He is now wearing royal robes. Just as Esther did when she got all dressed up to go and beg for her life. And she's wearing, they are, he's wearing royal robes and a crown as Haman wished to do. The difference is Esther and Mordecai have been humble and they have received those robes. Haman was always devising a plot to try to get this royal authority and, and clothing and power. So Mordecai gains what Haman wanted. And the people of Susa, who we learned week one, were thrown into confusion by Haman's decree. We're going to kill all the Jews. And they're like, why are we going to do that? We like them. We're all living together. Life is good. Why would we want to do that? They're thrown into con confusion. Now with... Uh, Mordecai's decree, they shout and rejoice, and there's not one hint of anti-Semitism in their response, which is great. Haman was an enemy of the Jews, not because he was from Susa, not because everybody else didn't like the Jews, but because, and not because he was a Gentile, but because he was an Agagite, that old blood feud. Many professed to be Jews. Literally, the, the wording is, many became Jews. And since this book, in this book, we don't find any Jewish practices. Um, Esther doesn't eat kosher food. Mordecai doesn't eat kosher food. They don't talk about any rituals or cleanliness or uncleanliness. Um, however, also, we said last week, there are three different versions of Esther. This is the oldest and the Hebrew text. Um, there is the Septuagint, which was, which was written in about 250 B.C., puts in religious language and says, oh, they decided to become circumcised. And, of course, they add God's name in prayers. Um, but in this book, there's the practice of Judaism seems less important than the ethnicity. So we don't really know what this means. They became Jews or they professed, or did they just profess to be Jews to try to save themselves? Did they actually convert in some way? Was this, uh, we don't know if this, the nature of their fear of the Jews is physical because now Mordecai is in power? Or is it a spiritual fear because they recognize that God is on the side of the Jews, the oppressed and the underdogs here? We don't know. But what we do know is that the ultimate triumph for any who are marginalized, for any who are in the minority, is to have the majority want to join them. And so that's what happens here. Everyone joins in to try to cheer on the Jews. Um, and we also see that the parallel nature of the appearance of Mordecai, the appearance of Mordecai is, is parallel to that of Joseph in Genesis 41, and it's not an accident. Joseph is also living in Egypt in the Pharaoh's court. He is elevated to a high level of power, um, and God 
is very explicitly behind Joseph's success in Genesis. And so by implication, without ever mentioning God, we see the same thing happening to Mordecai. This is what happened to Joseph. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. The same thing has happened to Mordecai. And because Joseph, we know, got to this position because of God, we can assume, or the people who are reading it will assume, that the same has happened to Mordecai. Because God is the protector of all of Israel, then we can see that God's unspoken protection can be seen here in the book of Esther as well. So many scholars argue that this is where the story ends because the, uh, one of the other three texts doesn't have any of these verses following. It sort of ends at this spot, and it doesn't give this etiology of Purim. But we have to find out what happens. So um, let's continue. We're going to see what happens. We see these, these themes still cropping up. It's the day. Now on the 12th month, on the 13th day, when the king commanded an edict was about to be, the king's command and edict were about to be executed. So we're trying to wonder. There's two commands and edicts. One is that the Jews be killed. The other is that the Jews defend themselves. What's going to happen? The Jews gathered throughout all the provinces to lay hands on those who had sought their ruin, and no one could withstand them. Wonder why. All the officials of the provinces were supporting the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Again, we don't know if that's fear, fear, or all fear, or we're in, we're in this with you, Mordecai. For Mordecai was powerful in the king's house, just like Joseph was. So the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And there's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. There's a lot of killing and dying, and the numbers are large, including the killing, including the killing of the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not touch the plunder. So unlike earlier chapters where anti-Semitism was due to a blood feud rather than a natural dislike between the Jews and Gentiles, here it's just sort of accepted as a fact of life. There are going to be people who don't like you. And in this case, there seem to be a lot of people who didn't like them. Though there is the assumption that plenty of the Gentiles are going to want to attack the Jews, but no one, of course, can withstand them. And there's the description of a lot of killing. It's one reason why Martin Luther just really was hostile to this book. He said it did too much Judaizing. There was too much blood. And, of course, we said last week, and there's too much pagan naughtiness. And um, he really didn't like it for this reason. Um, but we have to remember, the Jews have not sought the violence. It has found them. And that is another theme here. So they must either face it or be destroyed. And the Jews have gone then from being fearful and mourning to powerful and feared. Again, this overturning. Those who wish to destroy the Jews are destroyed. And now the Jews become the image of Esther, who changes from this silent and compliant girl to a strong and decisive woman. They, too, have gone from being powerless to strong and decisive and powerful. That very day, the number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king. And the king said to Esther, Now what is your petition? It shall be granted you. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according 
to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, but they did not touch the plunder. So Esther requests another day of slaughter, which is disturbing sometimes to us when we think about that. Uh, we don't know if there's evidence that there's a whole lot more people out there who want to destroy them or not. Uh, and she wants Haman's sons to be, they're already dead, but she wants their corpses to be publicly exposed. Let's hang them on the gallows. And this is an ultimate degradation in the Hebrew tr tradition. So we don't, there really is no reason given for why the Jews need a second day of fighting, but it does bring the story into compliance with the two-day festival of Purim. So what we think may be happening here is that this may be one example where history um, arises from the custom, where they were probably already celebrating for two days, and perhaps a redactor said, let's have Esther ask for another day of fighting. <laughs> so well, we don't know. We don't know. Um, but they did not touch the plunder. This has been mentioned twice, and it's a great emphasis, in spite of the fact that they had permission to do so. And this is in contrast, this goes back to King Saul and Agag in their first battle together, where in spite of the ban to do so, God tells Saul, don't take any plunder. Just kill the Amalekites and leave Agag alive, but don't take any plunder. But he took some booty, and so God said, you did wrong, and you've lost your kingship. So the Jews are not going to make this mistake again. Where they're not, it's right or good, they're not going to take any plunder. And so the Jews who were in Susa gathered, here we are, here's the explanation, gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day, that's where the slaughtering is, and they rested on the 15th day, making that a a day of feasting and gladness. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday. The Jews established a custom for themselves and their descendants. And these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Mordecai doesn't write to start a yearly celebration. It confirms one that's already taken place. They've already celebrated, and so we're just going to make this part of our history, and we're going to commemorate it. Salvation is what's to be celebrated here, not the killing. We're not celebrating the fact that we've killed people. We're celebrating the fact that, that we have been delivered, that we have been saved. Then Queen Esther, along with the Jew Mordecai, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. And there's a whole other letter that writes the same thing that Mordecai wrote. So she writes it. And the command of Queen Esther fixed these practices of Purim, and it was a recorded in writing and so Esther, as queen, establishes what Mordecai has requested, and Esther has made her last appearance. She's moved from passive girl to powerful woman. She's a role model for the Jews living in the diaspora. And um, when, my, when my daughter was a little girl, she loved Queen Esther because I think she wanted to be a queen, but we'd have to sit down and talk about what made Qu Queen Esther a good leader and what made Queen Esther great. And, and we would have to have these discussions. 
Queen Esther was, a, was good because she was wise because she observed her surroundings when she first came to the court. She didn't say much. She, she sought good advice from Mordecai and from her advisors and those around her. She was humble. She knew that she hadn't gotten to that place because of anything that she had done. And she navigated the male power structures to save her people. So when, it, when the time came, she stood up and she did what she knew was to be the right thing to do. She's the epitome of one who takes human action to bring about God's justice and goodness and salvation. And then we end with this. Mordecai the Jew is next in rank to King Hazarus. He was powerful among the Jews and popular with his many kindred. For he sought the good of his people and interceded for the welfare of all his descendants. Interesting it should end with Mordecai. <laughs> but Esther and Mordecai together sought the good of their people. And Esther becomes a role model not only for diaspora Jews, but for us as well. It's through her wise conduct as she works within a system that often rewards unethical behavior, just like we do sometimes. Um, and we talked last week that Ruth was sort of the new Moses in these stories. Esther can be seen, uh, she was a new uh, Abraham. Esther can be seen as a new Moses. She's risen to power in a foreign court, and she becomes a liberator and a lawgiver to her people in the Persian Empire. Esther reminds us that even when God appears to be absent, God can be most present working through willing followers and that we are all born for a time such as this. Next